Do you guys ever have a hard time with your Bible? And by hard time, I mean, do you ever have a hard time relating to maybe a particular thing you're reading or a particular book? Maybe in the Old Testament, it's a little, little strange, unfamiliar. Tell me if this sounds familiar to you. Um, I get a lot out of reading the Gospels and maybe out of reading the book of Acts. And I even enjoy a lot of the Old Testament narratives but I really struggle to understand what in the world some of the stuff in the Bible has to do with me and my life that I live right now. Or, or maybe this. How about often when I read God's word, I walk away feeling heavier and more weighed down by commands and laws. And I feel that then feeling freedom and security in Christ. Do you ever, any of those sound familiar? Those aren't uncommon, right? We've all either heard that from somebody else or maybe felt the same way, which is really strange considering that the Bible says all of the promises in Scripture, all of them, find their yes and amen in Christ. Therefore, all Scripture points to Christ. What could be more central to our lives than pointing to Christ? If the Bible is all about the promises of God pointing to Jesus, then why is it that often we can't see Jesus in the Bible, especially in some of these really weird books in the front of your Bible that talk about all sorts of sacrifices and bulls and goats and sheeps. And then maybe also in that last book that talks about helicopters that look like scorpions. You don't get that joke. Well, one of the phrases that an old Baptist confession uses to describe how all of the books of the Bible show themselves to be God's word is this phrase, the consent of all the parts. Now, the author of the book of Hebrews that we're going to be in today is teaching us that the Bible is in complete harmony with itself. It connects all the way through. It's a single story revealed by God. That's what it means that's what that phrase, consent of all the parts, means. Our aim this morning is to see how some very strange and foreign things to our ears from the Old Testament and the Old Covenant were always meant to point to Jesus. Always. If you're taking notes, my sermon in a sentence is this. God's plan for salvation God's plan for salvation has always been the better blood and sacrifice of Christ. God's plan for salvation has always been the better blood and sacrifice of Christ. Since we're jumping right into the middle of a book, you know, we've, we've been in Isaiah and then last week uh, we were in Acts um, let's talk just briefly about the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews. We don't know precisely who the author was who wrote the letter. Uh, there are some good guesses, but no one's certain. And we don't know the context in which he wrote, um, in other words, why he was writing the book exactly. And we don't even know precisely who he wrote to, though it's likely former Jews who had converted to Christianity, very likely. But we do know is that the pastor is seeking to show how the Mosaic law and specifically the Levitical priesthood relates and points to better things in Christ. You only have to read the first few sentences of the book of Hebrews as it opens to see that the pastor intends to show us all scriptures pointing to Christ. 
He's not plan B. It was always meant to get us to Christ. Now, like most of the other epistles, there are clear indications that this, this epistle is meant to be read aloud to a congregation. Uh, Hebrews is actually, because of that, a fantastic book to sit down with with your family, and you can see all these word pictures that the author develops about the older things in the Bible that were revealed, and then it's showing you those pictures as they relate to Christ. It's great to teach your kids through. Um, The style in which the author writes is that of a sermon. It's like preaching to a congregation. In fact, that's why oftentimes he's called the pastor um, by commentators and theologians alike. Um, prior to the text in chapter 9 is what we read, actually. That was a really long reading because we read chapter 8 where the author is telling us that Jeremiah 31, there was a direct quote from Jeremiah 31, the promise of the new covenant is pointing to Christ. Okay, so that's, and, and, and prior to this, he's already shown that Christ is better than angels, Moses, Joshua, Aaron, and all the priests. And that's where we find ourselves now. He's talking about the priesthood. He's already gone through all those other things that Christ is greater than. Now he's talking about the priesthood. Um, If you gathered with us last Sunday, you heard Matt give a fantastic sermon. I haven't gotten to tell you that yet. Where are you, Matt? That was a fantastic sermon. Um, And in it, you remember he preached in Acts chapter 8, and that's where Philip shared the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. And in fact, um, the way he did it was he took him from Isaiah 53, and the text says that he showed him from this text how it pointed to Christ. Um, And this is exactly what we're going to be doing today. Remember, even even Jesus, uh, when he was raised from the dead and he met with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, remember he says that to them, that from Moses and the prophets, he interpreted scripture and showed them how it all pointed to him. And then earlier in his ministry, far earlier, in the book of John, uh, John's gospel records Jesus telling the Pharisees that you search the scriptures because you think that in them, in just the scriptures, meaning the law, that you have eternal life, but it's the law that bears witness to me. So this is exactly what we're going to look at today. The old covenant, the whole book of the, all of those books that towards the front of your Bible all point to Christ. Now, very quickly, I'm going to tell you ahead of time exactly where I'm going. We're going to take a look at verse 1 through 7, and we're going to see regulations, we're going to see a place, and we're going to see transactions or a transaction, okay? And then we're going to quickly kind of read through 8, 9, 10, because something's, the curtain's being pulled back a little bit, but we're sprinting to verse 11, where there's this great sentence, but Christ, okay? And then we'll go back and look at 8, 9, and 10 and show you how all that stuff at the beginning of 1 through 7 should have been pointing you to but Christ anyway, and then we'll finish out the text. So that's, that's, that's where we're going, so you guys know ahead of time. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read this to you. I titled this first section of all these things, verses 1 through 7, What a Bunch of Weird, Outdated, Strange, Unfamiliar, and Irrelevant Stuff. That was the title of this section. So let's look through uh, verses 1 through 7 again. And I'm going to quickly read through them and scan and and, and look at all the weird stuff that gets revealed there. 
Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and the and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which uh, were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. Weird. It was called a holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of a glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. And we'll stop there. So when we read accounts of God's precise and specific commands regarding the physical symbols, illustrations, sacrifices, smoke, incense, precise rules and regulations, these, theme, these things seem really weird to us. Uh, and rightly so, in many ways, these are all meant to be signs and symbols and procedures given to ethnic Israel under the old covenant that God prescribed directly to Moses. Much of what we read in verses 1 through 7 is a summary of Exodus chapter 25 through 30 where God gave the details to Moses for the tabernacle. You'll remember that from our scripture reading earlier. So what is the new covenant, that's us believers, new covenant believers, to make of these things? Well, first, the thing we'll look at is regulations. We're told right away in verse 1 that the first covenant had regulations. Read that in verse 1. Even the first covenant had regulations for worship. When God establishes a covenant with men, he's going to stipulate the rules, procedures, ordinances, and methods of worship under that covenant. Followers of the true God are not creative worshipers from the beginning. We don't decide how we worship or how we approach God. God himself sets the prescription and prescribes and dictates the patterns for his worship. The children of Israel did not design the tabernacle. The children of Israel didn't come up with a committee like maybe we would if we were deciding what color to paint the nursery. No, this was not up to them. They didn't come up with the objects that were inside the tabernacle. These things were all laid out by God. In Exodus, God describes in excruciating detail how he is to be approached in worship. This is one of the things actually that sets aside true worship of the living God from false worship of pagan idols. Think about it. Can pagan idols tell you how to worship them? No. Uh, they're, what, what did the prophet call them? Dead and dumb? They don't speak. They're not alive. But our God, the living God, the one true God says, I don't want you to have to be creative and come up with the things. I'm speaking. I want your obedience. So pay close attention to what I tell you about how to worship me. This is very important. This is one of the major issues in distinguishing true from false worship. Incidentally, the fact that God did stipulate very specific, we read them, very specific objects and in fact, some graven images that were to be used in the tabernacle for worship raises a really important detail of the second commandment. Do you remember the second commandment? Thou shalt not make any graven image or any idol of anything. The key there is not that God hates physical things. Clearly, the old covenant was full of them. 
The key there is that you don't come up with them. God is the one who tells us how those things should be, what those things should be. True worship according to scripture is worship that is regulated by God himself. It is regulated by the scriptures. We're not called upon to be those who worship God primarily with an emphasis on creativity. God didn't say be creative. He said, do as I say. The children of Israel were very familiar with this, much more so than we are probably. They knew of the tabernacle. They knew of the items in the most holy place. And they knew of the priestly duties. Now, you might respond to this as I probably, in fact, I know I would have many years ago. I would have said, well, you might say, well, that's true for the old covenant people of God. But Jesus abolished the Levitical worship regulations uh, by fulfilling their promises. And, and to that, I would, I would agree. I'd say amen. But are we then to say because these things change, then we can just do away with all regulations? There's just a, regulations are done. Is that what happened? Is that what happened when Christ came? If so, then why does Paul speak to the Corinthians and the Colossians in such a way that stops them from doing some of the things they were doing in worship and tells them to do other things that they weren't doing in worship? Paul is showing the church that God has regulated even new covenant worship. We must be careful not to take liberties that we have not been given by God especially in regard to how he is to be worshipped by his people. We need to look at his word and obey with great care. By the way, this is precisely why you hear at North Point that we read the Bible, preach the Bible, sing the Bible, pray the Bible, and see the Bible through the Lord's Supper and Baptism. Because those are things that in the New Testament have been explicitly commanded for all of the gathered churches to do. So in recap... We've seen that there are very detailed regulations concerning the Old Covenant. And we've seen that even now under the New Covenant, the true worship according to Scripture is the worship that is regulated by God himself. Now, we're going to continue seeing these things having a connection, a continuity between Old Covenant and New Covenant, but also a discontinuity. It's not as though it's just completely, the New Testament's just completely cut off from the Old Testament. No, there's a continuous pointing to Christ through all of it. It doesn't just end. It is pointing to Christ in a progression. Now, the next thing we're going to look at in verses 1 through 7 is place. That's our next section, place. There is an earthly and holy place. Look at verse 3. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, or literally the holy, holy, holy place. Uh, Hebrew doesn't have like superlative, instead it just repeats. So it's, that's why you've heard it called the holy of holies, because it's double holy. We know from Exodus chapter 40 that the very presence of God dwelled in this place, like physically, like you saw a cloud of smoke that was God's presence, descend upon this place. And the reason for the curtain that was mentioned in verse 3 that separates the holy place from the most holy place was so that the presence of God would remain concealed from the priests that were doing their day-in and day-out duties in the holy place, the one that was outside that curtain. Because 
as we learned, I think it's uh, Leviticus 16, uh, if you entered the presence of God, especially in, specifically in that holy of holies, you die. Uh, Leviticus 16 is, is God telling Moses, make sure Aaron doesn't enter that place uh, in an incorrect way, in some way that I have not told him to, because he'll die. Um, there are even some extra biblical texts. Whenever I think of this, in fact, I had to, I was like, I don't think this is in the Bible. It's in extra biblical texts, but it's likely true that uh, a bell and a rope were tied to the high priest's ankle on the Day of Atonement because, I mean, he might die. And you'd have to listen for the bell, and if it stopped long enough, I guess you pull him out by the rope. As an old pastor of mine used to say, anybody want to volunteer? Anybody? In verse 5, we also note another symbol of the presence of God. We see the cherubim. The cherubim, we learned, actually just a few weeks ago in Isaiah 6, were these angelic beings who were always in the presence of God. That's what, that's, 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 that's what we know about them. They were there in the throne room with God. Also, later, or actually earlier, back in Exodus, you, you, we saw that Moses would meet directly with God, like face-to-face, it said, in the most holy place. Okay, that's why it's called a tent of meeting sometimes because God would meet with Moses in there. And when he did this, the text in Exodus says that all the people would stand by their, their tent doors and just kind of peer out and watch as he entered because it was dangerous. Uh, they didn't know what, you know, is God gonna kill Moses? Is, this is the presence of the Almighty and they kept their distance, which is important, another symbol. Place is very important in the Old Covenant. In fact, one of the distinctions, one of these discontinuities between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is the necessity of a holy place. We don't have holy places. That's because Christ is now with us. We are united with him. Everywhere Christ's church is gathered, there he is in the midst of us. You'll remember, you're familiar with, with Jesus' words there, right? In Matthew 18. Wherever two or more are gathered, there am I in the midst of them. This is specifically talking about the gathered church, not just two Christian buddies hanging out. When the church gathers, Christ is declaring his presence among his people. In the Old Covenant, it was not this way. Christ, or the God, his presence was in a centralized place that everyone was kept away from. Our places of worship don't carry the same significance that the tabernacle did. This that we're in right here, this is a meeting house. This is a place where we gather, but there's nothing particularly holy about the place. What's particularly holy is us. We are the holy ones cleaned by the blood of Christ, making us holy. And therefore, the very presence of God is here. So, we've seen God's regulations for how he is to rightly be worshipped under the Old Covenant, and we've seen the significance of place in the Old Covenant, and we've seen that there is both continuity and discontinuity of both regulation and place between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And now we turn to the transaction that took place in the most holy place. The transaction. 
Now, both the regulations and the plays described by the pastor in verses 1 through 6 have led up to the transaction that happens in verse 7. And not just one transaction, but a recurring transaction. A transaction that must take place every year in this particular place with a lot of detailed regulations. Read this here in verse 7 with me. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood. Some regulations there. Which he offers for himself and the unintentional sins of the people. Unintentional? We need to stop here. Uh, A little side note in our text. Ponder a little bit about that line there at the end of of verse 7. This is something that many Christians do not recognize or think about. And that's because, unfortunately, we often have a very truncated and minimalistic idea about sin. Our understanding of sin often errs in several ways. Here's, Here's one way. Number one, we often think of sin as merely in terms of things that we are actively doing, actively doing. Now, the Bible is very clear about sin being things that we actively do. That's not in, uh, in, 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 in any danger of uh, being untrue. But we think of them as one might think of breaking the law. This is a sin like stealing, lying, lusting. And we rightly understand these things as wrong. And they're not just wrong because they hurt others, or are bad for us. No, they're primarily wrong because they are transgressions against the Almighty God who has commanded us not to do this, and you have done it. So it's right and good and true to view these transgressions as sin. But we often don't remember the sins of omission. Omission, not commission, but omission. They are equally sinful. Sins of omission, these are things that would be the not doing what we should do. If sins of commission are committing things we shouldn't, omission is not doing what we should. This, this would be something like, uh, I've been commanded to pray to my, to my God, and I, I haven't done it, I don't do it. I'm omitting something I've been commanded to do. Or this would be like not gathering regularly, like we're doing right now. With, with the church of, of Christ. Uh, those would be, I haven't done what I was commanded to do. And we, we oftentimes see those too. But then in this text, there's something that we often overlooked, which makes sense because the very nature of these sins means that they're unintended and unnoticed. These are unintentional sins. These are sins that we commit and we're completely unaware that we've even committed them. The words here are translated sins of ignorance, When we confess our sins, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, just as Mark prayed, we need to be mindful that there are sins that we aren't even aware of that we need to say, God, I am guilty of sins that I don't even know about. I think that we minimize sin when we think that sin could only happen when we intend it to. I think that's possibly a common thing that occurs. Um, And that's because I think we like to be in control 
of what we're held accountable for. And we don't like the idea that there might be something that I didn't even know about that I'm in trouble for. We want to control that. And even that desire to control those things is sinful because only God gets to decide what is sin and what is not. Not us. Brothers and sisters, we can take away one thing from this. It's that we walk around sinning all the time. And we should posture ourselves in such a way that takes us very seriously. Now, what that might look like, especially for a guy like me who likes to argue and always thinks he's right, is when a brother or sister approaches me in kind boldness and says, brother, I saw this. I think it might be sin in your life. My first response needs to not be, no, it can't be. Let me show you the 18,000 reasons why that wasn't sin on my part. Instead, my response should be probably something like, you know, you're probably right. I, I don't even know when I sin all the time. Thank you for pointing it out to me. I'm sure I'm unaware of many sins that I've committed. Now let's go back from that unintentional sins that's under transaction. Let's go back to transaction in verse 7. The tabernacle was a place for sacrifice. That's where the sacrifices were transacted over and over again. The blood of animals was offered in sacrifice to God precisely as God had commanded. This was not some insignificant cultural peculiarity. How's that sentence? Rather, the sacrifice of animals was critical to the very existence and continuance of the nation of Israel. Do you know what the sacrifice of animals did? It held back and postponed the wrath of God. Did it for, wait, wait, I thought it forgives sin. Nope, it doesn't forgive sins. In fact, the text tells us this. And later in chapter 10, he makes it crystal clear. The blood of those animals did not forgive the sins of the nation. In fact, all it did was just show them how much wrath was stored up for them and postponed and that's, that's key. Hang on to that. Postponed the wrath and judgment of God. Um, this is a huge problem. Um, read these verses, 9 and 10, with me. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body. And we'll stop there. Hint, hint, stopping there. What in the world is he saying here? This is, this is an extremely big problem for a Jew who thought that the sacrificial system was their way to forgiveness. He's saying, look, None of those sacrifices, not even the sacrifice inside the Holy of Holies by the high priest on the Day of Atonement, actually cleanses your conscience. You remain unredeemed. You still need redemption. And so sacrifices have to take place again and again and again. Remember, we just read about the unintentional sins that are actually sins that matter. So, if we're offering sacrifice for atonement once a year 
And there are even sins that we didn't even think to atone for. We see this system of annual forgiveness or annual sacrifice, and we see this is a, this is a game we can't win. This pattern by itself will never end. As soon as we finish one sacrifice and walk out of the tabernacle, we have to go right back in. We're, we're immediately guilty all over again. But not so with Christ. The contrast between the old and new is going to be made clear by what Christ has secured. We're not there yet. Let's, let's, let's recap again. So we've seen regulations. And we've seen the importance of the place. And we've just seen that there are seemingly endless transactions of sacrifice and blood that are needed under the old covenant. Will we need to repeat these sacrifices? Will they need to continue in the new covenant? I'll give you a hint. No. Look at verse 11. Look at these glorious words. Uh, incidentally, Martin Lloyd-Jones, you know who he is? Famous English-British pastor, um, awesome saint. Uh, he preached an entire hour-long message on the phrase, but God. That's it, an hour. I'm not gonna make y'all sit through an hour of but Christ, but we could, we could. But when Christ appeared... Mm. Now that word appeared, okay, it's very important. It's a specific word that the pastor is using to talk about God's plan now being revealed. So the, the plan's back here. God knew the plan. We just didn't know exactly how the plan was going to work out. But then we did when Christ appeared. It's been revealed. It is now visible Christ's appearing, remember when I was saying that we could expose the text by the songs we sang? Christ's appearing was the answer to the mystery of God for our salvation. Behold, there it is. The wondrous mystery has been revealed. Let's read that right there in, in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. What a glorious introduction here to Christ appearing. Christ is the greater high priest, and he has appeared. This is exactly what one of my favorite texts of Scripture is talking about. It's just doing it in word pictures, and Paul is doing it in cold, awesome legal terms. Look at, look at um, well, you don't have to turn there. Romans 3, 21. Listen to this. Listen, listen how connected this is. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And not only that, by the way, the law and the prophets bore witness to it. Ooh. Now, before we continue on to verse 13 and 14 and talk about how Christ is the righteousness of God that was manifested apart from the law, we gotta go back and look at the verses that I skipped on purpose 
in 8, 9, and 10. So let's go back there. Put your, put your finger on it. And we're going to see how 8, 9, and 10 are the law and prophets bearing witness. Let's read 8 and 9. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way to the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit was in the tabernacle. The Holy Spirit was even then God's presence among his people. And now the same Holy Spirit is instructing us that the very architecture and tools and curtains and gold and regulations of the tabernacle, he intended them from all time and in fact was using them for the Jews during their time of the sacrificial system to point them to Christ. The Holy Spirit indicates this. The law and the prophets are bearing witness. Every time the people watched the high priest prepare the blood of sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, every time they saw all the ceremonial washings that the priests had to do, every time they stood at a distance waiting for the ceremony to conclude, every time they waited outside the presence of God in the most holy place, the Holy Spirit was indicating to them, pointing them to Christ he was never plan B. Christ was the plan all along. The Holy Spirit is showing us now that the mystery has been fully revealed. As long as the curtain remained that blocked the presence of God from his people, it was a reminder that sin had still not been dealt with. Blood was still needed. It's incomplete. It's not enough. It's crying for something better. Think back. Think back in your reading of the Gospels to Christ hanging upon the cross of his crucifixion, offered up as a bloody sacrifice for you, crying out, it is finished. And what happens? It's so great. The curtain that we've just been talking about, it gets ripped in two. I'd, I'd love to just talk about that for a long time. But, but the point that's being made is, and I warned you this is coming, is the same point that C.S. Lewis is making with Aslan's death in the Chronicles of Narnia. Okay, I'll make it brief for those of you who hate Narnia analogies. Why did Aslan have to die? The witch was demanding a sacrifice of blood that needed to be made because Edmund was a traitor. He had sinned. He was unclean. And she thought that she was going to win. Remember what she said to Aslan as he was bound and shaved and tied to the stone table and she hovered above him with knife in hand? She said, you fool. Do you think that by sacrificing yourself, you'll save the human traitor? Not only will I kill you in this place, but I will come back 
and I will kill the boy as well. In this knowledge, despair and die. What an idiot. Sorry, kids, don't use that word. (laughs) The witch completely underestimated the blood of Aslan. She had no idea how powerful the perfect blood of the king was. It was so powerful that it ripped the curtain in half. It broke the stone tablet in Narnia because the law had no claim on him. He made the way to God available to us by the power of his blood. Okay, done with Narnia. We understand that in the age of Christ that we're in now, where we have, we're on the other side of that atonement of Christ, we have a complete picture of what's being shown to the Israelites way back in the book of Exodus. Because now there's no separation from God in the most holy place. Now, because of what Christ has accomplished for us with his blood, not in the tabernacle made with human hands, but in the heavenly tabernacle, There, Christ performed the sacrifice, and this is key, once and for all. This means that there's no more sacrifice to be made. Not by Christ, not by blood of bulls and goats. There's no more curtain of separation from the presence of God. God now dwells with us right here. And let this freak you out a little bit. In this room right now. Do you believe that? Two or more are gathered in Christ's name right here. And what's more and so glorious is that this was the plan from the beginning. Let's look at the end of verse 10. See that little phrase there? Until the time of reformation, God had a plan that he had predestined since the before time began. A time when the better blood of Christ would pay for the sins of every saint who had ever lived. He died once for all saints. For thousands of years, think back to Romans 3, God endured the sins of the world in his patience, not ignoring or winking at sin. No, in fact, every, all these tiny details of the sacrificial system that we read, they're all pointing to the fact that he wouldn't ignore sin and that they deserved the wrath The people deserve the wrath that the bulls and the goats got to be killed in a bloody, terrible way. God went to great lengths, in fact, to show through the Levitical priesthood and the sacrifices. He wanted us to see that the penalty for breaking a covenant with him was a terrible price. Everyone should have understood that they deserved what was symbolized by the blood of those bulls and goats. All of Israel should have. All of this was to point them to Christ, the better sacrifice. Okay, so 
Coming to the end of our text here, we're coming to where I said we wanted to go. We've seen now in this last point that the Holy Spirit was pointing thousands of years before Christ came to Christ. So in verse 11 and 12, we see that Christ appeared and with him appeared good things. Let's read that. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made by hands that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So what did the blood of Christ earn? The good things that have come, like Romans 8, no condemnation for those in Christ. Freedom from the curse of sin. Access to the presence of God. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit in each of us. These are the good things. And will these good things last Or are they like the sacrifice that had to be repeated over and over and over every year on the Day of Atonement? I'll give you a hint. They last. Do you see that word at the end of verse 12 there? Securing eternal redemption. We're not used to the word redemption as it's used here. Modern people typically think of redemption in the context of redeeming oneself. Like if you were to come back from a big gaffe and you, you know, do a really good job after the fact and you redeem yourself or if your team has a really embarrassing loss and then later on they come back and they beat that team that they lost to, they've redeemed themselves. And, and nothing could be further from what the Bible means when it uses the word redeem. And that's because this is a transactional word. Remember, transactions are occurring. Sacrifices are occurring here in this text. And in the context of the Old Covenant, of the sacrificial system, it makes perfect sense. The idea here is a person who is in so much debt that they had to sell themselves into indentured servitude. And though they keep working hard and following the rules of their master, they aren't making any headway on their debt. In fact, they're going deeper into debt. This is exactly what happened under the Old Testament sacrificial system. We sacrifice the blood of bulls and goats, and we are immediately in need of more blood than even before we sacrificed that sacrifice. It never ends. It only gets worse. Our debt keeps piling up. But with Christ, a Redeemer has appeared who has paid our debt with a payment so precious, so perfect, so valuable that nothing we could ever do would put us back into debt. He came and he died with a blood of infinite worth, not just for the sins up until the point that we were saved, not just all the sins except the really bad ones, all sins for all time. Just like Aslan Christ's blood was too great for sin and death to overcome. His sacrifice, we read in verse 12, was once and for all. So we've seen that when Christ appeared, he brought with him the good things of the new covenant and he secured those good things by redeeming us, buying us back 
once and for all. And now we close in verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who is through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purifying our conscience, purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Friends, just as the old covenant saints were not made clean by the blood of goats and bulls, so also you're not cleansed from your sins by doing good works and good deeds. You can't do enough. You're continually sliding backwards. There are sins that, remember, you don't even know you're committing. If this was a scale... You're so far in debt, you can't see the top. Your conscience bears witness to this sinful state, doesn't it? Just like the consciences of the Israelites when they knew that the atonement was just going to have to be paid again next year. Friend, if you're honest with yourself, if you stop your busy, noisy life for just a moment and listen to your conscience, does it not tell you that you're unclean? And even if your senses have been dulled by the fleeting pleasures of sin, rubbing up against those fleeting pleasures and building up calluses that make you dull, and so you don't feel unclean, the text just told us that you are, in fact, you're unclean by sins you didn't even know about. If you find yourself here today still trying to pay for your own sins with the symbolic blood of bulls and goats, if you find yourself still trying to do more good than evil in the hope that your dead works will save you, will you please listen to your conscience? It's telling you that you need a better sacrifice. Christ is that better sacrifice. He alone can put your conscience at ease. Brothers and sisters, God from eternity past knew how he would save you from the cycle of dead works and the law. The dead works that the law exposed in us. He was gracious to us and the saints of old to show us that we can't sacrifice enough to pay our debt. The Holy Spirit points us to Christ because only his perfect blood can buy our redemption from sin, cleanse our conscience, and give us freedom in security a secure freedom that lasts forever. This plan was designed and carried out in perfect harmony, in perfect concert by the triune God. Some of us really need to hear this. God the Father, the Father, the one who demanded the blood, he loved you from eternity past. And he made this plan knowing that Christ would come and pay for you because he loved you. God the Spirit revealed and continues to reveal through the old covenant sacrificial system even the need for a better sacrifice and an efficacious and effective blood 
God the Son willingly submitted to the Father. The plan that has always been to shed his blood as the perfect sacrifice, thus securing your inheritance as a child of God once and for all. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, they're all working on the same plan. The Trinity is not at odds with one another. Christ is in perfect harmony with God. I'm going to close with this. Um, a word picture. Because that's what the author of Hebrews does. And it's actually, this is the reason why I chose this text. I'd never taught this text before, but I wanted to talk about the mercy seat. And the sacrificial system, and specifically the mercy seat, and how it was used where the cherubim looked down, the presence of God looks down upon the seat, and blood is put on that seat so that when God looks down at the people, he sees the blood instead of their sins. That's an awesome picture of what Christ has given us by his blood. When God looks down from heaven, he does not look down in anger as if Christ were like holding him back and like trying to prevent him from coming down and and, and wiping us all out. Adam Sandlin made a great point the other day in our Wednesday night study. Uh, it stuck with me. He said, he said, remember that God isn't this angry, wrathful being who doesn't love you, and Jesus is the one that loves you and saved you. No, this is God's plan. This is God the Father's plan from eternity past. He planned for Christ to atone for you because he loved you. And when he looks down on you, and we didn't sing this song because I don't think Matt's led it before, but it's in my head. When he looks down from heaven, one of the songs we sing says, there's no seam in this garment, all my rags to hide. You know what that's a picture of? It's a picture of the blood of Christ covering us. So when God looks down, he sees Christ. And then the second part of that song, it says, uh, uh, all my rags to hide. Therefore, no less is your love for Jesus than for mine. That means when God sees us looking at the blood of Christ that's covering us, mercy seat, he sees Christ. He loves us the same way that he loves Christ. And only the blood of Christ could have bought that. It's the only thing in the world powerful enough to do that, to cover our sins. And that's where we close today. If you know Christ, if his sacrifice has been made for you, then it covers you because it was a better blood, a better sacrifice than all the bulls, all the goats, all the good deeds that you could muster. We are secure because Christ's blood is sufficient.